No asylums in heaven, no triage there, no prosthetics, no more hospitals, no more arthritis, no more emergency rooms, no more fevers, no more shattered dreams. God says there'll be no pain of any kind. And so this is the last time you will ever read of pain in all of Holy Scripture. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've been looking at what heaven is like and what the earth will be like when Christ returns to earth and reigns for a thousand years. It's all part of our study of the book of Revelation. And in a three-part message entitled, When Heaven Comes to Earth, Dr. Brogy is going through chapter 21, verse by verse, and explaining this exciting time following the time known as the Great Tribulation. Dr. Brogy has noted from verses 1 and 2 that the old earth, the earth corrupted by sin, will be done away with, and a new earth, not unlike the Garden of Eden before the fall of man, will come into existence. Most Christians know that when they put their faith in Christ, that the Spirit of God comes to dwell inside them. But a time is coming as described in verse 3 that God will literally and physically dwell among his people. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy. Today, Christ is not physically here among us, and he doesn't live in man-made temples, but he lives in the body of the redeemed. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are a holy temple in the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 3, he calls us the temple of God. But notice this dwelling place of God will be different. Look again at verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them a second time. Right now, as born-again people, we've been made alive, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit such that we can worship God, but we cannot see God. But this somehow will all change dramatically when Christ comes for the church At the end of verse 3, it says, and God himself will be among them. Now, we can't fully understand what this is going to look like, but someday, somehow, we will experience the glorious manifestation of the triune God in a way that we do not know him today. Now, the greatest miracle of this new universe with new bodies to walk in this new, new universe on a new earth in a new city is that the living God will be among us. In eternity, if you know Jesus Christ this morning as your Lord and Savior, you will know a new intimacy with God that you can never, ever even conceive this morning. Now, while the presence of God will be the chief terror for every lost man who dies without Jesus, it will be the chief happiness and joy for every saved person. Jesus prayed to the Father in his high priestly prayer. Listen to these words. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. Our eyes will see him. Our ears will hear him. We will somehow behold his glory. This is what will make heaven truly heaven. But listen, if you went to heaven and Jesus was not there, It'd be like going on a honeymoon without your bride. It'd be like moving into your new home and and your groom was living somewhere else. John's whole point, twice over so we cannot miss it, is God will be among them 
uninterrupted, eternal, perfect, unbroken fellowship. It's not the streets of gold. It's not the fact that there's no pain or death. All great things. But the Lord God will be there. You see, right now, we don't have unbroken fellowship. One moment, we're walking intimately with God. The next moment, sin interrupts it. Our fellowship is not perfect, but it will be in this place. It's a pleasing place because this is where God is, and there'll be no eternal sorrow in this place. And I say eternal sorrow because there will be some sorrow initially for some, according to verse 4. Did you see it? And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In heaven, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, which tells me initially some will weep in heaven. Sometimes we minimize the judgment seat of Christ. It's the judgment that's described in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, and it's elucidated in a number of passages in the Bible where every believer will give an account of himself to God. Not to see if you get into heaven, that's settled the moment you're born again. But it's a time of evaluation when God will look at our service. And I think sometimes we minimize the significance of it, and yet Paul says in heaven, some will suffer loss at this judgment. But even with that said, it pictures the love and compassion that God will have for us because he will wipe away, not one of his angels, he himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And these are not tears of repentance, for no one in heaven will be able to repent. No one will go there as a lost man and be able to get right as Clark Pinnock falsely taught that men can have a second chance after death. Nothing could be further from the truth. But with that said, it doesn't mean even that we won't cry in heaven. These are tears of sorrow. But I think there'll be tears of joy there. I suspect we'll weep for joy when we see all the magnificence of God's grace and the full and proper function of our tear ducts will probably work perfectly there for all the right reasons. Now, in the rest of verse 4, John describes the conditions of this new Jerusalem in negative terms so our finy, puny, little finite minds can get it. Here, John is recording the joy of heaven by telling us what will not be there. And there are four no longers. I have them all underlined in my Bible. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. When Adam and Eve there in the garden brought sin into the world with sin, the Bible says death came with it. And so God had warned that the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. But in heaven, there's no more death, not even the skin cells on your body that die each day. There'll be no death of any kind, no expression of death. Never fatigued in heaven. Your body will never need to be refreshed in heaven. Understand, heaven is not some eternal rest home. There's a lot that we're going to do in heaven, and we're going to discover this in the weeks ahead. But there's no fatigue in heaven, no wear and tear in heaven, no weakness in heaven, no disease in heaven, no decay in heaven. He also says there will no longer be any mourning. Some of your translations render that sorrow or grief. And this word is associated in the Bible with grief that comes through death and all the various heartbreaks of life. J.C. Rowell, the great British pastor, wrote this in the last century. 
He said our worldly goods are taken from us and we have sorrow. We are encompassed with difficulties and troubles and we have sorrow. Our friends forsake us and look coldly on us and we have sorrow. We are separated from those whom we love and we have sorrow. Our own hearts are frail and full of corruption, and that brings sorrow. We are persecuted and opposed for the gospel's sake, and that brings sorrow. We see those who are near and dear to us refusing to walk with God, and that brings us sorrow. Oh, what a sorrowing, grieving world we live in. But thank God there'll be no sorrow, no mourning, no grief, depending on your translation. God will say, enough is enough. There'll be no longer any death. There'll no, be no longer any mourning or crying. You say, that's redundant. He just said that. No, it's a different word. And it's a word that is used to describe someone shouting or screaming. And it's never used metaphorically in the Scriptures, but only literally of someone who in grief or in anxiety is shouting out. In first century Koine Greek, it's used the, of the cry of a woman in intense labor. It's used in Koine Greek of the lamenting cry of a person who is being marched off to justice for the crime they have committed. The same word is used in Acts 7.57 of those who in their hatred screamed and cried out against that preaching deacon by the name of Stephen just before they executed him. There's another no longer, notice. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. Pain entered into the world with the fall. There was no pain prior to the fall. So Eve has promised in every woman thereafter that in childbirth they will experience pain. Adam has promised that the earth would be stubborn to plow, and by the sweat of his brow as he fought thorns and thistles, he would have to farm it. God put man on notice that sin brought consequences. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, said, pain is God's microphone to get our attention. And so this fallen couple, Adam and Eve, soon experienced pain, even over the death of their son, Abel, as Cain slaughtered him. Pain is just a part of life. We can't outrun pain. We can't erase pain. We can't hide from pain. We can't get vaccinated against pain. We can't shelter ourselves from pain. It just comes. But there's coming a time when there'll be no physical pain, and beyond that, there'll be no mental pain or emotional pain. No asylums in heaven, no triage there, no prosthetics, no more hospitals, no more arthritis, no more emergency rooms, no more fevers, no more shattered dreams. God says there'll be no pain of any kind, and so this is the last time you will ever read of pain in all of Holy Scripture. And John tells us why. The first things have passed away. In other words, he's saying the old order of things, the old way of life is gone for a new way. This is the great reversal that will be unfolding in the new Jerusalem. The first way of life on old planet earth with all of its universal language of death and mourning and crying and pain will all be forever gone. You say it's too good to be true. You know what they say about things that are too good to be true? They're usually too good to be true. Well, it all depends on who's saying it. And just so you couldn't miss it, God underscores the reality of this. Look at verse 5. And He, this is the Father, 
who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Paraphrase, God says, I cannot lie. I'm the one who's giving you this message, this truth. I am the sovereign God, and I will make everything new. And you can count on this because I am promising this, and all of my promises are faithful and they are true. Now, I loved it when we moved into a brand new home one day. It's something nice about going into a brand new home that no one else has polluted. Well, I want to tell you, someday we're going to move into a brand new world, and it's going to be in a brand new city that will come down through a brand new universe, and it will sit on here, and there'll be no funerals, no graves, no hospitals, no broken homes, no broken hearts, no broken hopes. It's going to be a glorious, magnificent place that the power of God can make, and His wisdom will be seen. Listen, it's a permanent place. It's a prepared place. It's a pleasing place. Look, also, heaven is a purified place. It's a purified place. Look now, if you will, at verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now, again, the one speaking is the same one in verse 5. It's the Father who is on the throne, and he describes himself here as the Alpha and the Omega. If you know Greek or at least learn the alphabet, as my grandchildren just did, they say they want to recite the Greek alphabet to me. I said, I'm impressed. Then they recited the Hebrew alphabet to me. I'm even more impressed. The Alpha, that's the first letter in Greek. And the Omega, that's the last letter in Greek. Interpreted here by the phrase, the beginning and the end. In the English, we might say, I am the A and the Z. And so the Father is saying, I am the beginning and I am the end. If human existence and human knowledge and human history had an alphabet, then God would be the first letter and he'd be the last letter. He's saying, there was nothing before me and there's nothing beyond me and there's nothing after me. And by the way, this is the exact same expression that Jesus took upon himself in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. And when we come to it again in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus himself will also say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He will use a designation of himself that is uniquely used to the Father, but also of the Son. And here the Father promises that people will be able to drink without cost or freely from the spring of the water of life. And what did Jesus promise? Same promise. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and then out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. These things Jesus spoke concerning the Spirit, who was not yet given because he had not yet been glorified. He takes the same title, makes the same promise. Why? Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are inseparable. We just baptized some new believers, not in the names, but in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And the Father here says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. The King James says, freely. The Net Bible says, free of charge. You can't buy eternal life. You can't merit heaven. You can't achieve it. It's already been paid for. It is the gift of God, and it's been paid for with Jesus' sinless blood. And so here God is promising that in heaven, the deepest needs of the human heart will be met. Every thirst, every longing 
will be totally met. And then he says in verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. He who overcomes, we've seen that throughout the book already, eight other times. This reference of overcomers is not used to describe the spiritually elite who have been successful in their Christian life. It is used throughout the Revelation to describe every true born-again, blood-bought child of God. Put out in the margin, would you, next to this verse, next to verse 7, 1 John 5, 4 and 5. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Let me read to you what John wrote in his first letter. For whoever is born of God or begotten of God, or born again of God, depending on your translation. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. (laughs) This promise is not just for the spiritually elite. If you are saved, then the Bible says you are an overcomer, and you will indeed inherit all things. God is speaking, and he explains that he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That expresses intimacy. In the great Chicago fire of 1871, Dwight L. Moody, again, the Billy Graham of his day, the evangelist, went back to survey the ruins of his home, and a friend came to Moody and said, I heard you lost everything. Well, said Mr. Moody, you understood wrong. I have a good deal more left than I lost. What do you mean, his friend asked. I didn't know you were a wealthy individual. Moody opened his Bible and he read this verse, Revelation 21, 7. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Overcomers. Now, he's not speaking of perfect people. But listen, when you're born from above, you have a new direction. So John can say, who has overcome the world? It's those who have faith in Jesus. Did John describe the people in his first letter as perfect? No. He said the one who says he's not a sinner is a liar, and he's made God out to be a liar. But there's a new direction. It is impossible for someone to be inhabited by the Spirit of God and not have a change of life. And if your life hasn't changed, you better look hard because you may have a false profession. Look at verse 8. He's making a contrast here. What a distinction between verses 1 through 7 and verse 8 and one little three-letter word, two in Greek, separated. But, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. These are not the overcomers described in verse 8. These are the people who are overcome by sin. They're driven by sin. Now, the Christian today is considered a loser. But the real losers, sadly, are these people. He speaks of them as cowardly, People who did not have the courage to stand up for Jesus Christ. This refers to many who may even call themselves a Christian, but were too ashamed to receive Jesus and to confess him before men publicly. That's why Jesus said, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who's in heaven. That's why we do a public invitation, and I make no apologies for it. 
People who know Jesus are not ashamed of Jesus. But notice also in the verse, he describes the abominable. It's a Greek word that means polluted. Those who have indulged in sin is a way of life, and so they are polluted in mind and body and spirit. Then he mentions murderers, the fellow in Chicago who takes a gun and kills a police officer, the person who kills his neighbor, the person who hates with his heart because to hate your brother, Jesus said, is to be a murderer, the abortionist who wants to take innocent little lives. And what a mess our nation is. And the wicked, wicked, wicked governors of Virginia and New York and North Carolina who signed a bill who said, if the mother with her doctor wants to kill her baby on her birthday, then they can do it. And everyone on that Democratic platform endorsed that move along with wicked, homosexual behavior. I'm sorry if you're a Democrat, but that is a wicked thing. And there are wicked Republicans. This is not a political thing. This is a moral issue we are dealing with. Murderers. Then he adds immoral persons. It's the word pornos. We get our word pornography. It is used in the New Testament to refer to any illicit practice of sexual behavior outside of marriage. It would include the adulterer, extramarital sex, the fornicator, premarital sex, the homosexual, the rapist, the pedophile, even the movie producer who lauds this behavior and produces it for Americans to watch. Then he adds the sorcerer. It's the Greek word pharmakia. We get our word pharmacy from it. And so, yes, in just a few months, even in our own state house, we will decide as a state whether or not we will legitimize pot like 21 states have done. It's wicked. It's an upside-down mind. It's a depraved, reprobate mind where men call evil good and good evil. And the word pharmakia is used in Scripture, often translated as sorcery. People who are using drugs are entering into the demonic world. Listen, Mr. Pothead, you are entering into some dangerous realms when you suck down that reefer. Then he mentions idolaters. Idolatry is anything or any one you put above the living God. Murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. He finishes with liars. We'll spend a lot of time on that in the next chapter, so I'll wait on it. You're probably saying, Pastor Carl, you just condemned a lot of people to hell. I didn't condemn anyone to hell. I'm just telling you what John wrote here, and it came from the breath of the Spirit of God. However, understand, every one of us are here somewhere on this list. The point of the message is not to say that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. The point is, is that everyone is guilty. Everyone is worthy of the wrath of God. For there is none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And these classes of people who will be thrown into the lake of fire will be there. I missed it, but let me say it. The unbelieving. That's the most sobering category because unbelief is the father of all sins. It opened the gates of Eden to sin and it will keep people out of the new Jerusalem and the new world. Now, we studied in chapter 20 that their part will be in the fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. 
So this passage is not referring to salvation by works, but it is referring to overcomers versus those who do not overcome. Those who are overcome by sin, the Scripture never speaks of perfect people. It never speaks of the perfection, but it does speak of the direction of the believer. Do you have a new direction in your life? You are saved by grace alone, but the faith that saves and the grace that saves is never, ever alone. It changes you. And once this separation between the overcomers and the non-overcomers is fixed, it can never be undone. Jesus said, and beside all this between you and me, there's a, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and none may be able to cross over from there to us. Heaven is a purified place, off limits to the lost people. One pastor, wife, her name is Joy. She teaches a Bible study in a neighborhood that's pretty rough. And in her class was one young lady, one teenage girl, sad, fearful. We'll call her Barbara. And Barbara, you know, lives in a home where she was afraid and fearful and abused. A home filled with drunkenness and drug use and sexual immorality. And while all the other girls would speak in the Bible study, she'd be silent week after week. When they sang, she never sang. When they laughed, she never laughed. But she came week after week after week. And one day, Miss Joy gave a lesson on heaven. And when she started to speak of heaven, she looked up. When she learned that there's no death and no sorrow and no crying and no pain, she raised her hand, and Miss Joy was somewhat surprised. Yes, Barbara. She said, could someone like me go to this place called heaven? And Miss Joy said, yes. It's made for sinful girls like you and like me. Do you know that heaven is made for saved sinners? And if you've never met him, there is no more important decision in your whole life because what you do with Jesus will in the end determine what he will do with you. Receive him, and though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. You reject him. You ignore him. You choose not to believe him. And you will remember the words of this pastor pleading with you this morning to come to Jesus for all of eternity. To listen again to today's study, part one of When Heaven Comes to Earth, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478. And for today's message, be sure to request program REV63. The rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine is forecast to be complete by June of this year. Consequently, we're planning another trip to Israel in late September and a second trip in early October. 
We've now included our anticipated itinerary online at stsisraeltour.com. Check it out and fill out the information request form to be updated on developments of this trip. That web address again is stsisraeltour.com. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll begin part two of When Heaven Comes to Earth. Join us then as we search the scriptures.